in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word. Remind us that it is living and active. That it is sharper than a two-edged sword. That it is more pure than gold refined by fire seven times. Father, that it is the word of life. And that it is our great responsibility to pay attention to your word. For in it is the words of life and comfort and warning and peace and joy. We only harm ourselves by our distractions. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach this word purely, clearly, concisely, passionately. That I would decrease while your word increases. And so, Father, we pray your spirit upon me and upon us that your word will not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you again for joining us as we are going through the book of Colossians. Our series has been called Jesus is Enough. And, uh, I believe as we go through week by week, we see more and more the fullness of that message, the sufficiency of Jesus. This week, um, we continue what is considered uh, one of the uh, highest Christological statements in the Bible. Christological is just a fancy word for the doctrine of who Jesus really is. Uh, We finish this paragraph that we started last week. Last week, we, of course, uh, looked at verses 15 through 17, where we saw that Christ is supreme in creation. He is supreme in creation because he is the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is the alpha and the omega. And he is the sustainer of all things. And so, if you can imagine, as great as what we saw last week, Paul, in verses 18 through 20, goes higher, goes more magisterial, declares Christ's supremacy at another level entirely. For this week, we are going to focus on the fact that Christ is supreme in redemption, and that he treats redemption after creation 
is a, is a subtle hint that what Christ has accomplished in redemption is the real jewel of what Christ has done. And so today we are going to transition to look at Christ's supremacy in redemption. The commentator Peter O'Brien, I believe, uh, describes how this passage works very well when he says, The hymn had previously asserted Christ's primacy in creation. It now mentions his primacy in resurrection. In both new creation and the old, the first place belongs to him alone. So as we look at this passage, we are going to to look at four reasons that Christ alone is the way of salvation. That Christ alone is the way of salvation. What does that do when you hear the words, Jesus is the only way of salvation? For some of you, You hear those words, and they anger you. It's narrow. It's it's limiting. It's it's uh, it's 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 stealing from so many good people the opportunity of salvation. Some of you are just filled with doubt. How can some person be the way of salvation? How can someone else accomplish my salvation? Others of us have heard it, and we we believe it intellectually. We, We ascribe to it. We say, yes, Christ is the only way of salvation. But we have a hard time experiencing the peace and the joy and the comfort in our hearts. We almost hold to Christ alone as the way of salvation a bit with embarrassment. Like, yes, I I believe that, but I don't want to proclaim that. Or we hold to that in our in our heads, but in our in our lives we, we believe that there's got to be something more. There's got to be my part in all of this. And so the words Christ alone, I I, I can't make sense of that because I believe that, that it's all about what I am or what I do or what I didn't do. That has to be part of it. And so when we hear Christ alone is the only way of salvation, we often come at it with many buts and questions and objections and just plain shortcoming. I mean, can we know any way Gets us to heaven? Can we, can we even know that? Well, this text today is here to set clearly the good news that Christ alone is the way of salvation. So for those who have doubts and have questions, I ask that you bring it to this text. Allow what is in this text to speak to you to your questions of whether it is fair, of whether it is overly narrow, or whether it is necessary. And for those of us who, who, who struggle to, to enjoy this news, let these four reasons Christ away is a salvation be a comfort and an assurance to you to give you security in your Christian life. You see, 
the reason Christ alone is the way of salvation is because Christ alone possesses the unique life that is required to be saved. And so as we look at these four reasons that Christ alone is the way of salvation, we are going to see it because only his life has the qualities and the attributes and the power to save. Let us look at these four reasons in turn. The first reason Christ alone is the way of salvation is that only his life is the vitality of the church. Only his life is the vitality of the church. We're told at the top, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when we read the words church, we need to recognize what that really means. Church is, is a translation of the word uh, ecclesia. It basically means called out ones or the assembly. And it is a word that is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to refer to God's people. The church is the assembly of God. It's God's people gathered together. It's the people from the Old Testament, starting with, with Abraham, all the way to today. When we talk about the word church, the scriptures is talking about that one assembly of God, that one people of God. And so Paul is saying that Christ is the head of that body, the church. He is saying that this assembly of God has one life source, namely Christ. And how does he go about establishing that Christ is the life, the vitality of God's people, the church? He goes about it by using an incredibly powerful and dense metaphor. He calls Christ the head of the body. We all know how important the head is to a body. And so immediately the metaphor communicates that Christ is the life of the church. We also recognize that in being the head of the body, he is above the church. He is the the control center, the the mind that, that directs the church. And so in calling Christ the head of the body, we are recognizing that he is the head in two senses, lordship, and life. Christ is the head of the body of the church in the sense that he is the Lord of the church and he is the life of the church. Let us look first of all at what it means that he is the Lord of the church. If you have a, a Colossians open, if you look over to chapter 2 verse 10, you will see Paul giving us an explanation of headship right there where he says, You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is the head of all rule and authority. And so when Paul speaks of Christ the head, he clearly has an understanding that he is the authority, the sovereign, the one in charge of the church. Now this is important. For us to understand that when Paul uses the word uh, head, he has lordship involved as well as life. Because it tells us something that some of us miss. And that is this. Christ's life 
and Christ's lordship are inseparable. You don't claim Christ's life without putting yourself under Christ's lordship. Because the the same head that is life and Lord cannot be cut in half. You cannot have Jesus who saves you and not have Jesus who rules over your life. They must be held together. They belong in one head. So let us now look more in in depth at the the meaning of life. Uh, Clearly, I don't don't know, I I came from the Midwest where there are a lot of chicken farms, but we had this expression, uh, uh, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Do we have that expression? So a chicken has reflexes and does some wild and crazy stuff before it dies when it, it chops the head off. But no chicken lives once that head is cut off. The whole idea is that the head is the source of life. It gives life to the body. We depend on the head. If we are separated from the head, we are without life. And so Paul is telling us this very powerful message that the church is alive with the life of Christ because Christ is its head. You see, what separates Christianity from all other religions and all other ways of living in this world is an astounding assertion. Christianity isn't a list of rules. It's a relationship. There are rules. There are things that we do, of course. But primarily what is Christianity is a relationship with the living, risen Lord. And it is out of that relationship that our obedience and our life comes out of. And so we we see this explicitly in in the Apostle Peter's letter. 1 Peter 1.8, we are told, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, the idea of Christianity is not that you are part of, of, of a system, but you are in a relationship, a relationship where you can love and know this one called Christ. As Paul says in, in, in the Gospel of John on the, the last night before his arrest, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. There is a living relationship. We are connected as a living branch into a living vine. And the sap of Christ, the life of Christ, flows into us and is what makes us alive. I really hope that you behold the beauty of this truth, that that the church is filled with the life of Christ. That what makes the church unique is that the people who know Christ Know him personally, not as a, not as a law book or as, as a code of, of being good, but as a personal relationship. One of the things that thrills me is that you can read biographies of Christian men and women for the last 20 centuries. You can read their, 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 their autobiographies, their statements of faith. And the beautiful thing is 
they know the same Jesus that I have met and that I hope you have met. They, they, they speak of him with love and affection. They know him personally as Savior. And they've written these words across centuries. We sing these hymns. These songs were written by people aflame with a personal love for Jesus. They come from every country. They come from every century. They are a witness that the life of Christ has been present in the church for all time. Have you ever had an experience meeting a Christian from another culture or, or another place in geography and you, you hear how they speak and you discover the same spirit sings in us? I remember when I was uh, an engineer, I made a, a, a mistake. I, uh, I made fun of somebody in a public email. Can't, can't believe it. Did it. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was wrong and I was convicted that I shouldn't have done that. And so I called up this person and I spoke to him and I said, listen, uh, what I did was wrong. I made fun of you. I embarrassed you. Forgive me. And he said back to me, he said, can I ask you a question? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because he was able to hear in my conviction of sin that we belong to the same Lord. Over this phone, over many states, he was from a completely different culture. He knew the same Jesus. And we experienced him together. Uh, so, so what is the beauty of knowing that Christ's life is the vitality of the church? It's this. You can know him. You can know him. There are some of you who are, are simply watching your wives or your husbands or your parents getting a lot out of church, making you come perhaps. But I am saying what is filling them, what is delighting them, what is securing them in peace and joy is available to you because the one they know calls you to know him and rest in him by putting your faith in him. Where is this life? Where is this life of, of, of Christ? Where do we experience it? Here's a bombshell. In the church. You want to experience the life of Christ, the closeness of Christ, the stoking embers and flames of Christ? Be in the church. It says it very clearly. He is the head of the body, the church. If you sever yourself from the body, you sever yourself from the head. And this whole description of life passes you by. Christ alone? Why, why do we say Christ alone? Because he is the head, the singular head of God's people, the singular people of God. In Christ alone is the vitality of the church. But even more, we move to the second reason Christ alone is the way of salvation because only his life is the guarantee of resurrection. Only his life is the guarantee of of resurrection. 
Why is he the church's life? Why can we know him through the centuries? Why can people from century 4 and century 12 and century 21 all speak of the same knowledge and the same experience of a Lord that loves them? It is because he is risen. He is the risen Lord. As Paul says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is written to the Colossians around 60 or 61 AD. The words, the firstborn from the dead, are testifying to recent news. Jesus was resurrected in 30 or 33 AD, depending on how your calendars work. Paul is not writing here a, 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 a stale article of faith. He is reporting recent News. This is recent history that he is the firstborn from the dead. That is what Paul writes. He is alive. This is written by eyewitnesses. It is because Paul met the risen Lord that he writes with such confidence, such uh, certainty. Do you recognize that the, the words in your New Testament are the preached words and the written words by eyewitnesses to he is risen? More than that, the biographies of the, of the original apostles, the authors of Scripture, the original preachers of the gospel, they all end horribly. They all end in suffering and persecution and martyrdom because they confessed Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. They were convinced that the Lord of this world was not Caesar, it was Jesus because they were convinced by their own eyes and their personal relationship that Jesus is risen. They never recanted. For those of us who have a hard time accepting the resurrection as just beyond the pale of belief, consider what it means that these 12 apostles did not recant under the threat of their own life this simple message. He is risen. I have seen him. Chuck Colson, who was part of the Nixon administration, uh, and was converted in prison. He went to jail for being part of Watergate. Told us why he knows the resurrection is true. And I, I share this quote because I think it is very uh, persuasive. It says, I know the resurrection is fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, and stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The eyewitness testimony of your scriptures backs up the claim he is risen. 
And so his resurrection reveals that he possesses an indestructible life. As Peter preached him uh, in Pentecost, he said these words, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus down because death had no claim. Death searched Jesus and found no sin, no impurity, no unrighteousness. And the whole contract is, I get sinners. And when a non-sinner came into his presence, it could not hold him. And it spit Jesus back up. He is risen because it was not able for death to hold him. And so we preach Christ alone. Why? Because he alone defeats death. I'll recommend any savior to you who is risen again. And I will say, put them in a bracket and see which one wins. But by my estimation, there's only one who is risen from the dead. And so your bracket has one option, one Savior, one Lord, and that is Christ. More than that, because he is risen, we know that we will be too. I mean, the resurrection of Christ declares to all of us, death is not the end. There is something after death. Christ has made that clear. Paul explains this in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We know that we face death because we are in Adam, but because of Christ's resurrection, we also know those in Christ have resurrection. And so there is the evidence that he is the firstborn from the dead. This means that resurrection is the end, not death. Christ's Resurrection in the middle of time is the promise that we will all be resurrected. Now that is not necessarily a happy term. The the word resurrection applies to both those in Christ and those outside of Christ. There is a resurrection to life and there is a resurrection to judgment. The, The fact that Christ is risen lets us know that there is not simply death awaiting us. There is Christ And you will either meet Christ as your Savior, or you will meet Christ as your judge. But that is what we must face when we recognize that he is the guarantee of resurrection. Christ's life means that death is not the end. Benjamin Franklin's favorite quote, uh, there are only two things that are certain in this world, death and taxes. Christ overrules. The the thing that is actually certain is that you will meet Christ. You will meet Christ. It is not death that we we must make peace with. It's Christ. 
It is the one who defeated death. Christ's life is the only hope greater than death. And that sets him apart. He is the only hope greater than death. He is the only one who has said these words and has backed up these words. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's Jesus' question, and I believe it comes off the page. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he is in a class by himself. Do you believe in him as Savior and Lord? And Christ alone is the, is the guarantee of resurrection, but more, we go to reason three, only his life is the fullness of God. Only his life is the fullness of God. Paul writes in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What, what made Jesus the one who raised from the dead? What made him resurrection life? Paul answers it in verse 19. He is the resurrection because his life is God's life. His life is God's life. When we are told in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we are saying that in the person, the historical person of Jesus, dwelled the fullness of the deity of God. Meaning that in Jesus, all the perfections of God, all the wisdom, all of the power, all of the knowledge, all of the goodness, all of the holiness, all of the faithfulness, everything that is God was in Jesus as a person. All the glory was in him. And this is obvious. In Jesus, then, you don't come to a way to God. In Jesus, you come to God. And right there, all other paths are shown to be folly. They do not end with God. Only Jesus, because the fullness of God dwelled in him, can be the way. Let us dwell on that word fullness. If you're familiar with the, the story of Exodus, chapter 40, they build the tabernacle, this tent, this meeting place for God, specifically to, to his exacting requirements. They build this magnificent, beautiful tent. And at the end of the, the book of Exodus, we are told that the glory of God came down and filled the tent or filled the tabernacle. 
so that the fullness of God was, was there in the tabernacle. And that became the one place of meeting with God. That is where Moses went to hear the words of God. That is where the priests went to bring sacrifices to God. God was in one place, the tabernacle. Because that is where the fullness dwelled. That was the meeting place. And we see in Isaiah 6, what, a, what an amazing uh, presence that was. Uh, uh, Isaiah comes to the temple and he sees the seraphim uh, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole uh, room is filled with smoke and filled with his glory. It shook and trembled at the presence of the fullness of God manifested. But that is only a partial picture. The full picture comes in Jesus. We're told that that at one point Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up to a mountain, and we are told that he was transfigured before him, before them, that his, his presence became like light, that his clothes were whiter than anybody could possibly bleach them. You see, in Jesus was always the fullness of God at the transfiguration. The glory was allowed to beam out and to shine so that the apostles could know clearly that this one on the mountain with the glory of God is also the one that goes to the cross. It is the full glory of God resting in Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in him, a person. And so when Christ came and he gave his life as a ransom and he gave up his last breath so that God made clear there is only one place where all the fullness of God dwells, at his death, the great curtain that separated the people from the fullness of God's presence in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So God declared, this is no longer where I dwell. If you want to meet me and know me, you come to Christ. That is the fullness of God dwelling in him. When we say all the fullness, we recognize that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. That the mediation between God and man is complete. What do I mean by that? I mean, how can one of us come and talk to God? What right do we have to speak to God? We, we are a, a creation. We are mere mortals. He is creator and immortal. We are unholy. He is holy. The, the gap, the distance between us and the living God is too extreme for any of us to possibly approach. We need a mediator. We need someone who can come to us, who can lay one hand on our shoulder and the other hand on God's shoulder and bring us together. Without that, we are just praying to the ceiling. But that is what Christ is because he alone is perfect man and perfect God. As man, he is able to represent us perfectly to God. He is able to stand in his humanity to God and represent us. 
He is able to stand in our place and take our judgment because his humanity is real. His humanity is the same as ours. He is fully man. But at the same time, he is also fully God. And so he is able to perfectly represent God to us. Coming to Jesus is coming to God. And being fully God, he is able to endure all of the judgment of God that must be expended for our sin. Only Jesus represents full humanity and full divinity in one person. And so why do we confess Christ alone? Because he's the only one who can possibly stand before us and stand before God and make us one. He alone is able to bring us into perfect communion because Christ alone is the fullness of God. But more, our fourth reason, Christ alone is the way of salvation, is that only his life is the price of reconciliation. Only his life is the price of reconciliation. We have, we have talked about this Christ as the image of God. We have talked about him as preeminent over all creation. We have marveled that he was creator of everything that exists, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth. We have marveled that he is the sovereign over every power and authority. We have recognized that he is the alpha and the omega. He is the reason everything exists and he is the the purpose for all existence. And we see that he is the sustainer of all things. Every moment is a moment because Christ allows it and perpetuates it. And then we come to the end of this hymn, and we read these words. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Stop right there. You're telling me that the one that we have been preaching is preeminent and supreme, above all things, all-powerful, full of glory, God's beloved, died on a cross, suffered the shame of maximum humiliation, and endured the pain of maximum suffering on a cross. That should always jar us. He, that one, dies on a cross. My friends, if there is another way of salvation, I assure you, Christ would not have died on a cross. It is only because it required that one's death that one's sacrifice, and no one less that Christ died on a cross. 
It is only because our sins are that weighty and that severe and that damning that it took the precious blood of the one from heaven to be spilled. My friends, to confess or to to waffle on the question of whether Christ is the only way is to say at the same time, then Christ died for no purpose. If he is not the only way, then his suffering is ultimately unnecessary. And I can't go there. Christ alone. We see all things are reconciled in him. Christ's reconciliation has the exact same extent as his work of creation. We see that there is only Christ can be the Savior because just as there is no creation apart from Christ, there is no reconciliation apart from Christ. The, the reason that we have come into Colossians right after Genesis 1 through 3 is to show us that it is Christ alone that puts the fall back, that reconciles the fallen creation. Now, when Paul uses the word reconciliation here, we must recognize that he is, is using it in a a sense that is not most uh, uh, immediate to our minds. Reconciliation often means uh, 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 restoring a relationship. That is included here, but when we see that reconciliation in this verse includes all things, we, we must recognize that this reconciliation goes beyond simply uh, restoring a relationship. Because in the, in the phrase, all things include demons and include Satan, and there is no evidence at all that demons and Satan are saved. They are, they are condemned. What, what is meant by, by Paul by the words reconciliation here is explained by the words making peace. And making peace can involve uh, a, a, a creating a new relationship. It can also mean to pacify, to put down. And I think both senses are in view. You see, when Christ died on the cross... He conquered as much as he saved. His death rescues the creation from the bondage of sin and death. His death is the victory that that resets all things under God's rule. And so for some, Christ's death is a message of peace, that you are restored to God. But to others, the cross is peace by being overthrown. You see, for some, the cross is salvation. It's it's captives set free. For others, the cross is the death blow. It is the end for sin, death, and Satan. We're told what happens because of the cross in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the cross of Christ, the, those who were hardened rebels, those who are in the armies of darkness, they were overthrown. 
And at the same time, those who have been, been held captive by sin, who come in repentance, they have been restored. But in the cross of Christ, all of creation is reconciled under God. All of creation bows the knee because of what Christ has done on the cross. How amazing is the cross. That this this instrument of obscene humiliation done in the middle of history, done in an obscure town, done on a Friday, is the place where all things are reconciled. Where all things, your life and my life, is ultimately made sense of. It is because Christ died on a cross that the cross must be the very center of our life and our existence. If you can make sense of your life without the cross, you are outside of the peaceful reconciliation of Christ. The reconciliation of Christ that saves is when you recognize, but for Christ, that would have been me. His life took our death, our punishment. It is finished is the declaration that you are reconciled by Christ's death because you have peace with God. My friends, have you bowed the knee in worship and submission to Christ alone? He is the only way of salvation. If he isn't the, uh, let me finish with this. He isn't the one way of salvation because God is narrow-minded. He is the one way because he is the only one that can accomplish our salvation. When we recognize what salvation requires, complete payment of sin, a mediator who is both God and man, and resurrection from the dead, we can see that there can only be one way. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He has given us the way of salvation. He has become our Savior in Christ. You see, the supremacy of Christ offers us the great comfort of assurance. If we have Christ, we have everything. We lack nothing. We are secure, and our joy is complete. Are you trusting in him? Are you resting in him? Trust in these words. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Rest and rejoice in the good news. Jesus is enough. Amen.